Okay, so if you're with us this morning, and you're one of those people who enjoy reading books about things like self-improvement, or, or books on leadership, how to lead others, how to lead self, you're probably very familiar with a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Now, it's a bit of a classic. It was written in 1989, so a bit ago. I might be dating myself. Those of you who are younger may not be familiar with it. Um, but, but of the habits of highly effective people, number five is my favorite. It is, it is a, a habit called seek first to understand, then be understood. Here's uh, author Stephen Covey explaining this habit. If you're like most people, you probably seek first to be understood. Uh, understood. You want to get your point across. And in doing so, you may ignore the other person completely. You may pretend that you're, not, that you're listening and selectively hear only certain parts of the conversation or attentively focus on only the words being said but miss the meaning entirely. So why does this happen? Because most people listen with the intent to reply not to understand. You listen to yourself as you prepare in your mind what you are going to say, the questions you are going to ask, etc. You filter everything you hear through your life experiences, your frame of reference. You check what you hear against your autobiography and see how it measures up. And consequently, you decide prematurely what the other person means before he or she finishes communicating. Ouch. I'm not going to say I'm frequently guilty of what Cubby describes, but I know I am sometimes. Now, now this was written before the onset of social media. So, so it's focusing on face-to-face -face communication or conversations over the phone. In those, in those interactions, he's saying that we're not so much concerned about the other person, we're self-absorbed and self-centered. Now, if that was true of how we interacted with one another in 1989, social media has certainly made it easier to be self-absorbed and self-focused. As people interact, they're focused on what they want to say. They're focused on their contribution to the conversation rather than seeking to understand others. Why is that the case? Well, if you were with us last week, uh, we mentioned this morning marks the transition to a sermon series that we started last fall in the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, we've paused to break at various times to consider other topics, but, but eventually we want to complete the entire book. If you want to listen to those past sermons, if you weren't around when we were working through that content um, and you want to catch up to better understand how we've preached through prior chapters, you can find that content on our website, you can find that content on Spotify. You can find that content on whatever app you use on your phone to listen to podcasts. So this issue of being more concerned with self as we interact with others, it's something the Apostle Paul explores from a Christian point of view as we get back into chapter 8. And he contrasts two, two dispositions of how people interact with a phrase that he uses in verse 1. Knowledge puffs up, that's one disposition. The other, love builds up. Okay, when interacting 
Some people use knowledge to puff up. Others use love to build up. Well, how are they different? That word for puff, puffs up, it literally means to inflate, to blow up, to cause to swell up. So this is not a balloon that is blown up to an optimal size. No, this is more like, like a, a pipe that is overinflated. It's swelling beyond typical capacity, and it has significant potential to cause damage and harm. Someone with this disposition, they are arrogant. They are cocky and conceited. They are self-absorbed and self-focused, pompous and prideful. So one reason, not, not necessarily the only reason people seek to be understood rather than seek to understand, is because we're self-centered. Knowledge puffs up is one disposition. The other is love builds up. Now that language to build up, it means to build a house, to, to erect a building, even to repair something that is broken. Those that build houses in our church uh, or those that work in home renovation, you know that it requires a great deal of sacrifice of personal resources. But, but in sacrificing personal resources, something is built to serve others and to protect others and to shelter others. Rather than being self-centered, the disposition of love is others-centered. Paul recognizes that the way in which some Corinthians were interacting was disconnected from love and compassion. Rather than build up what love does, they were seeking to puff up. So our big idea this morning is, is breaking down this distinction. Love puffs, puffs up. Excuse me. Excuse me. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. So if you have a Bible or Bible app to, to explore this big idea, open to the passage read earlier. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. We're going to look at a couple passages outside of that text along with 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through 8, but those will be displayed on the screen to avoid you having to flip back and forth. For now, let's look at verse 1. Paul says, Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So Paul uses that language now about. What's going on there? Paul is responding to a letter that the Corinthians wrote expressing questions and issues and concerns. In this case, the, the thing they wrote about was food sacrificed to idols. Whether it was okay for Christians to eat meat that had been used in temple worship that was later, that was later being served at a dinner party or sold in the marketplace. Now, Pastor Chris um, is going to examine more of the specifics next week as we continue in chapter 8. So I will, I will gladly save some of the complexities of this debate for him. Maybe, maybe gladly is too soft a word. Enthusiastically. Um, understanding food sacrificed to idols is not something I'm very familiar with. For the purposes of this sermon, here's what, here's what I want us to understand. There was a debate between two positions, and they were dividing over an issue of conscience. They were dividing over knowledge of whether or not something is right or wrong. 
Now, sometimes issues of conscience are clearly stated in Scripture. It is easy to determine right and wrong. Committing adultery, that's clear. Never right, always wrong. Not getting drunk, that's also clear. Always wrong, never right. But sometimes issues of conscience are less clear. For for example, drinking alcohol in and of itself is not sin. Which means, as 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, there are ways to drink wine or good beer to the glory of God. But our conscience will place parameters around how we drink alcohol. Because we could misuse it in a variety of sinful ways that do not lead to drunkenness. Things like we're trying to escape, trying to impress others, drinking under a legal age, not drinking around people who are sensitive to alcohol, surfacing past hurt in relationship, our desire to be above reproach. These are matters of conscience that are rooted in Scripture, but don't clearly define how much we drink. There is not a one-size-fits-all approach telling you how much to drink or how often to drink. Now, some of you have a conscience that tells you one drink is too much. Having one drink for you is sin. Some of you have a conscience that tells you otherwise. Like one of my friends who has a three-drink rule. Three drinks is his responsible limit. Consuming beyond that amount during an evening gathering would set him up to use alcohol in a sinful way. Okay? So in raising the issue of food sacrifice to idols, Paul is addressing an issue with parameters not clearly defined in Scripture. Worshiping idols, that was sin. That was clear. How people thought about food sacrificed to idols was less clear. So there were some who thought it was sinful to eat meat associated with religious practices, worshiping false gods. It makes sense why they would reject that meat. Others thought, you know what? Idols aren't real. There is only one God. And if that's true, there is liberty and freedom to eat that meat. It's good food. Their knowledge of theology said, eat it to the glory of God. Now, we don't, we don't eat food sacrificed to idols. But our cultural moment certainly has questions about issues of conscience with parameters not clearly defined in Scripture. And how we, how we approach those issues can cause division. It can create factions within a church. Okay, let's think through some of those, some more relevant to us than others. We mentioned alcohol. American Christians have divided over responsible use of alcohol, whether or not it is okay to drink. Good Presbyterians say, absolutely, there is freedom to do so. Good Baptists say, absolutely not. No alcohol. Politics. Some Christians would say it is a sin to vote for a Democrat or to be a registered Democrat. Others might say it is a sin to vote for a Republican. Instead, to avoid sin, you need to vote for a Libertarian. Entertainment. There is a line when watching programs with violence or sexual content where it becomes sin. Where that line is, is up for debate. That could be a source of 
division creating factions in a church or the ways in which we interact over that could cause harm and hurt to members of a community. Last, COVID. Some might say it's a little controversial these days. Some Christians would say believers that don't embrace masking practices or vaccination practices are sinning. Others would disagree. These conversations are heated and filled with all sorts of tension. Churches are sometimes having members depart, splitting from the church over those types of concerns. When dealing with matters that can lead us to divide into factions, knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Now, I want to make sure I say, having well-thought-out convictions on matters of conscience or issues that can be divisive, that is not a bad thing. Knowledge is not the problem or the enemy. How we use or misuse knowledge is. That's Paul's concern. When we embrace a disposition of knowledge puffs up, we tend to embrace a position we have a better perspective of those who, than those who differ. And we can do that. We can embrace that disposition regardless of what that perspective is or how well thought out it is. As Paul addresses the issue of food sacrificed to idols, his initial focus is not on food that is entering the body, but rather the attitude and approach being displayed by the body. That display, or the, that display of approach and that display of attitude, it was causing division. How they were handling the issue was hurting and harming people in the church. They weren't loving one another well. Issues like I mentioned, issues we have differing opinions on how to act as Christians, those can serve to divide and damage a church. In addressing how the Corinthians are approaching the issue, the Apostle Paul is actually kind of punchy. One commentary I read used the word combative. Paul is taking seriously how we engage one another in the church over issues that can cause division and conflict. When interacting with others over issues that can be divisive, whether that interaction is face-to-face, over the phone, whether that interaction is virtually or on social media. Reflect on yourself for a moment. What words tend to characterize your disposition? How do others experience you? Arrogant? Annoyed? Dismissive? Compassionate? Approachable? Charitable? What, what words would you use to describe how you interact with others? But being pastoral for a moment, not punchy, let me say in many ways we're a church insulated from the knowledge that puffs up. We're filled with people who choose to love, choose to build up, even when we disagree. But if we're honest, there are times we can be guilty of falling into a disposition of knowledge puffs up. We can adopt a self-centered approach 
with brothers and sisters in Christ in how we interact with one another. So, we may need to receive some of Paul's punch this morning. Let's consider what he is saying. Paul's introductory statements in verse 1 through 3 distinguish how knowledge and love are different. Let's draw out a couple concerns Paul identifies as he addresses the knowledge that puffs up. In in sticking with the intent of the text, let's talk about how the knowledge that puffs up can lead to overinflated personal perspectives. So in verse 1, we we see there is an expression in quotation marks. We all have knowledge. This could have been a, a direct quote from the letter the Corinthians wrote to Paul, or it may just be a general slogan that the, Corinthian, the, ugh, the Corinthians used to justify a variety of actions and behaviors. Since we don't have that letter, we don't know. But Paul is using that slogan to point out how an argument could be made to justify the personal perspective of some Corinthians. Why there should be freedom to eat meat. Christians have knowledge that there is only one God. Christians have knowledge that eating food is not a bad thing. We all, we all have this knowledge. This slogan would therefore support a position, a perspective that we should eat meat sacrificed to idols, and it would undermine a perspective to not eat meat. A disposition that we can't eat food sacrificed to idols. The reason someone wouldn't do that, they would be denying knowledge. The Corinthians were overinflating their personal perspective while dismissing and undermining the complexity of others. Of course, you and I do things like this all the time. We misquote those who think differently than us. We take a quote out of context. We project particular motives onto people. We use statements of sarcasm to prove our perspective while pointing out the, the stupidity of someone else. We have, the, we have this book at the Gardner House, The Fallacy Detective. It details ways people use false logic to, to make a point. You know, think, think of like the child who says, Mom, you don't love me when you tell him or her that they can't have a cookie. Or, or the child who says, Dad, you don't trust me if they can't go, go somewhere they want. It's false logic to, 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 to get a, uh, across their point of view. We label. We appeal to fear. We, we paint terms with a broad brush, dismissing nuance and clarification. Now, we can do this during face-to-face dialogue or over the phone during virtual communication. We can over-inflate our personal perspective while minimizing or diminishing the perspective of others. But I, I think we really see this on display in how we interact on social media. Twitter is a really good platform for this. It's the place for pointed statements rather than meaningful dialogue and discourse. By the way, this this is a key reason I avoid Twitter and why you should too. Now, I'm sure someone, uh, someone in this room may have justified a reason to use Twitter. You can see me afterwards. I'm joking, kind of. 
Uh, okay, so Twitter is not the only platform we over-inflate personal perspective while undermining the perspective of others. It can happen on Facebook or Instagram. We post a meme. We engage in what's called a, a straw man argument. That's when you engage the perspective of someone who differs from you, engaging a weaker version of the argument in order to make it easy to win. You don't actually engage a person. You cherry pick words or phrases from their argument to make your perspective look much better. Some of the way we engage on social media, we would never do face-to-face. -face. Why is that? I think we need to be mindful when posting on social media. Is this the way I would interact with someone face-to-face -face during a gospel community gathering? If, if I wouldn't, why not? When using knowledge to puff up rather than love to build up, we tend to overinflate personal perspectives. So a second thing that can tend to be produced is overinflated personal preferences. So sometimes you and I, we will use a theological argument or a defense to justify something. Not, not so much because we think it's right, but because it's something we want to do. We prefer it. And think about the issue of speeding for, for a moment. I am sure there are ways I could build a theological position to, to justify the practice of speeding. Pretty sure. But, but I'm not sure how much of that would be rooted in a desire to glorify God. I would be manipulating or twisting my knowledge of theology to serve my personal preferences. Let me give another example. Well, let's think about the individual whose conscience knows it is a sin to drink one beer or one glass of wine. To justify a decision to drink, he or she might use the rationale, hey, there is freedom in Scripture to drink. Pastor Paul even said Christians can drink alcohol to the glory of God. In this, in this case, we can manipulate our conscience to not so much align with what we think is truly right and wrong, but what we prefer to be right and wrong. When we use knowledge to puff up, we manipulate and twist theology to uphold and support personal preferences. Because the theology justifies it, it is something that I have the right to do or something I'm entitled to do. But Paul's concern is how the Corinthians are using theology to serve self. That's at the heart of the expression, knowledge puffs up. It seems the Corinthians were using theology. By the way, it's actually theology we'll find that he agrees with. They were using that knowledge of theology to justify a decision to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Okay, think about why that might be the case. Like you and I wanting to eat a good prim, prime rib dinner. The Corinthians wanted to be able to, to eat meat. The, the Corinthian diet typically consisted of bread and vegetables. So some good beef would have been a nice change of pace. But, but much more than eating different kinds of foods, eating meat was a social activity. 
Many friends and family who were not Christians would, would have been sharing meals with that kind of food. To refuse to eat could have meant being excluded socially. Eating meat also demonstrated status. Well-to-do people were the ones that would typically eat meat in their homes and in the temple. Eating meat demonstrated you had arrived. You were climbing the ladder. To not eat meat meant you were more of an outsider. So when meat was available to the Corinthians, there were all sorts of reasons they preferred to say yes. And they knew They knew how to manipulate their knowledge of theology to justify such a preference. This is what the knowledge that puffs up does. So if knowledge that puffs up can lead to overinflated personal perspectives and overinflated personal preferences, how is the love that builds up different? What are are its characteristics? Let's read verse 2. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. You're like, what, what is that? Well, have you, have you ever heard that expression, he doesn't know what he doesn't know? It's describing how a person is naive, uh, how they're leading with pride and arrogance, and how they have blind spots that they're unaware of. That person being unaware of those blind spots, that's dangerous to him and to others. Okay, here Paul, that's not what he's saying. He's saying something a little different. Something like, people who have knowledge know they don't know what they don't know. Is that clear? Uh, maybe, Maybe something like, those who know don't think they know what they don't know. Maybe that's better. It's a little confusing. Paul, Paul is saying, we can have a misunderstanding of what it means to know something. True knowledge, when we truly understand the complexities of an issue, it leads to humility. When I claim to know something, if that knowledge doesn't lead me to humility and love of others, I don't really know it. Processing through issues that can cause division are far more complex than debating a straw man. Because people wrestling out those issues are far from simple. So love that builds up considers the perspective of others. The the way to build up is not to fight to win an argument. It is not to show how your knowledge of an issue is right and someone else is wrong. The way to build up is to love. If you want to love others, lay down what you want to say and ask more questions. It's so difficult to do that in general, let alone on social media. It is more of a platform to monologue and to get likes and affirmation, to puff up rather than to have meaningful dialogue and discourse. To to consider the perspective of others, ask questions, particularly ask Why questions? And when someone answers, don't pounce on what they say so quickly that you miss their heart. Don't think you know why they said what they said. Clarify why. 
There's a reality as we engage issues with potential to cause division. When love builds up, we recognize there is far more to the conversation than simple knowledge. Think COVID for a moment. Maybe, maybe someone I love dearly is in a high-risk category or knows someone in a high-risk category. Maybe I've witnessed firsthand how it can take the lives of people I care about. As others talk about how to address it, they don't seem to see how complex the issue is. Some people will die seems rather callous and unloving. On the other side, maybe some have been impacted by the reach. Or, if I'm a libertarian or a political conservative, I want to say overreach of government. It has damaged my personal life. It has damaged my professional life, maybe both. So I'm concerned with how when the government gets involved in what should be personal matters, it causes a lot of hurt and harm. Love takes the time to consider the perspective of others. Love lays down the things we are thinking about, how we want to defend, how we want to justify for the sake of building up. This is what love does. That's the first characteristic. The second is it surrenders personal preferences. One way to to view spiritual maturity having to do with, with our conscience is that the more I understand freedom in Christ, the less I am bound in unnecessary ways to act a particular way, right? The the more knowledge that I have about that Christian freedom, the more spiritually mature I am. And, And that freedom brings power to talk a certain way or to make certain decisions with what I watch, uh, to make certain decisions with how I spend my time, what I eat and drink. The the Corinthians writing to Paul about the issue of eating meat, they seem to have taken on this view. Paul, Paul wanted to clarify that view of spiritual maturity is incomplete. But believing the the greater freedom that you exercise means that you're more mature in Christ. That that, that means you've grown up into someone who who is holy and right. That, that, That isn't getting at the whole picture of what it means to be in Christ. So here's what he says in verse three. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Now, I'll say scholars believe this verse in general is not well translated. It seems Paul is not so much talking about loving God and being known by him, but rather, if anyone loves, if anyone loves, he is the one who truly knows. Paul is saying the mark of spiritual maturity is not correct theology to embrace particular practices. The mark of spiritual maturity is love. True knowledge is not the accumulation of facts, nor correct theology. The foundation for true knowledge is that one has learned to love others. When love is the foundation, Christian maturity is rooted in a willingness to surrender preferences and wants and desires and freedoms for the sake of others. So much so 
when we jump down to 1 Corinthians 8.13, this is something Pastor Chris will cover in more detail, we read, Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. Paul is willing to give up eating meat. He's willing to give up the social activities connected with it. He's willing to give up the way it might be connected with status. He's willing to give up a good piece of beef, not because his theology tells him it's right or wrong, but because love determines how best to interact with others. Spiritual maturity isn't about using knowledge to gain power to do what you want to do, to gain greater rights and freedoms. When love is the foundation of spiritual maturity, you are willing to surrender preferences and rights and freedoms. That doesn't mean you will, but it very much means you are willing to do so. So love uses knowledge not to serve self, but to build others up. Love lays down knowledge. In the seven habits of highly effective people, the source of seeking to understand, the source of listening to others, the power to be humble, the ability to serve, it is an intellectual knowledge of how I can be effective. It's about me. It's about how people experience me. This is the best the world has to offer as we engage one another over issues dividing us into factions and causing conflict. Christianity offers something much different. The love of a Savior. Listen to Jesus talking in, in the Gospel of John. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. Christianity offers a Savior who laid down his life to build others up. The power for us to do that isn't a foundation of theological knowledge, but knowing the person of Christ. The love of God demonstrated in the cross of Christ provides the foundation and power for us to lay down our life for others. The foundation for spiritual maturity is not knowledge. It's the love of our Savior. Listen to pastor and author Paul Tripp. I am deeply persuaded that the foundation for people-transforming ministry is not sound theology, it is love. Without love, our theology is a boat without oars. Love is what drove God to send and sacrifice his son. Love led Christ to subject himself to a sinful world and the horrors of the cross. Love is what comes to seek and save the lost and persevere until each of his children is transformed into his image. The hope of every sinner does not rest in theological answers, but in the love of Christ, the love of Christ for his own. But because of Christ, we are set free 
from being self-centered, from fighting for our rights, from using knowledge to puff up and serve self, and to instead use love to build up. Over the, the past several months, I've engaged a number of conversations about how we interact with one another over issues that we disagree. To, to have a passage that speaks into the matter, this sermon was a, was a bit of a great burden. I lost some sleep on this one. Uh, we, we, we certainly did not address all the potential issues this week. Pastor Chris is going to cover more um, in future sermons as we get into the text more. But, but I, I do want to say this. As, as we're figuring out what it looks like to love one another when we find ourselves divided over particular issues, I'd love to grab a cup of coffee and lunch or lunch and wrestle some of that stuff out. I suppose that's part of my role as the pastor of care and community. We live in a world where all sorts of people are talking and using knowledge to justify self and to justify particular positions. We're not listening to one another. We're not seeking to understand. To understand doesn't mean you agree. It simply means you understand how someone arrives at particular conclusions, even if you disagree with that conclusion. The world we live in, we are losing dispositions of listening and understanding. And all too often, that worldly disposition is displayed in the church. It characterizes the way we interact with one another, face-to-face, -face, on the phone, and all too common on social media. May we not interact with one another as the world does. May the church be a place where we demonstrate something different, the love of Christ. May we be the type of people who do not use knowledge to puff up, but we use love to build up. May we listen well and seek to understand one another well as we engage over challenging and heated issues. As we know the love of our Savior, May we sacrifice and surrender well for one another. Let's pray.